We're back, bitches. Welcome to Queer Icons. <laughs> if you aren't aware of this podcast, we cover wonderful queer icons that are important to the LGBT community. And we give our thoughts on why we think they resonate with us so much. My name is Matthew. And I'm Nico. Yay. Welcome back. <laughs> it's been a few months. It has been a few months. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And we're back. Um, Gonna be productive again. Yes. <laughs> This time we're doing our intro segment a little bit different where I have brought some topics and we're just going to shoot off the cuff about them. Since it's been a couple months, a couple, a few things have happened since our last recording. One of them being we had an actual Atlanta Pride this year. We did, yes. Yeah, it had been a few years. Officially, it was the first major one since the pandemic has hit. Yeah, and we had an actual parade. And yeah, the park festival this year. Mm-hmm. I Do I did love stories? that. Well, I was definitely house hopping and partying from one house to another house, <laughs> <laughs> and then to I I was there was a at my boss's house at some point, and I realized that I had consumed you know a lot of alcohol up until that point and i was like oh we have to go to the park which is walking distance but how i truly walked from his condo to the park it was almost like teleportation like i have very like (laughs) don't remember you're probably listening to music and and i was with friends and i remember we were like so happy and like cheerful and everything about this pride actually was just so wonderful. I had, I, I definitely did have a lot of fun. And then arriving at the park, running into more friends, and then enjoying Betty Who again, as which is like the fourth. Oh my gosh, I forgot Betty Who was there. Yes. And yes. She, yeah. I think it was like my fourth time now or fifth that I've been, I've seen well, her. Well, it was my third because we, we've seen, seen her a few her. times yeah, so yeah we've every time i've seen her it's been with you and i together okay but you and cameron had seen her before me at least once so it was fourth at yeah least. so yeah yeah and again she was impeccable she and was this fabulous. this was the last time with her before her new album came out yes so it was her old set list she did like, have I'm like sure. a new song she did. From she did perform one of them. Album. And um, I noticed the jackets were already said big on them. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you know, they'd already kind of updated the outfits. But Yeah. No, and she was incredible. <laughs> Just, if you're not aware who Betty Who is, she is this emerging queer icon, yeah, I would I'm, say. I'm so she's yeah, okay. in it. She's okay, in the community, icon. she's very established. But... Yeah. I would I would love for her to actually go more mainstream. It's not gonna happen. I don't know. I, that's that's what the album is about. <sighs> Have you listened to it? Yes, but I would also like her to find a broader I mean, I would love audience. For her too, you um, know, but she knows her audience, and mm-hmm. it's it's literally what the new album is about. Is like coming to terms with the success that she has had, and yeah. kind of realizing that she's not gonna be a Madonna or a Gaga, you know, <laughs> and so. Well, the, yes, those are very jing <laughs> right. aspirations to have. Well, I know, uh, but when you're, a singer, when you're a pop singer yeah. in particular, of course, that's your dream. Yeah. But there's a lot of people that have a very good level of success that mm-hmm. are not that, you know? No, true, true. And it's just an infectious energy. Just She makes me smile. And every time that I see her, just look her up, watch her YouTube videos. It's 
Okay. I can, she's I can so much fun. She yes. has a lot of energy at her concerts. It's wonderful to be Amazing. In. Yeah. She like dan- she has the whole choreographed routine with her dancers through almost every single song oh, yeah. that they do. Every single concert. Yeah. Wow. And we of course follow one sings. of her dancers on Instagram because I, fo- I, is, I follow a couple of her dancers. He model beautiful. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that was a very nice conclusion to Pride this year. Yes. Um that was great. So we're going to fast forward to Christmas where we got, we got queer icon coasters from my, your best friend. Oh, yes. They're so cute. So he gave them to us obviously because of our podcast Mm -hmm. and they're very cute. They're kind of, they're, everybody is recognizable, but they're kind of drawn in an animated, exaggerated way. Yeah. It's a stylized version of like little portrait floating heads situation (laughs) yes that was very cute i did like that so what about let's say let's go with i think sam smith's resurgence and being hand in hand with kim petras and becoming his biggest song ever yeah and and the grammys just happened first trans artist to win that award i love that sam smith gave kim the opportunity to uh, have the acceptance speech kind of to herself. Right. And I think the arrival was wonderful. We saw some, like, drag race queens accompanying them and the red carpet, but the, everything was, was so wonderfully coordinated. And Sam Smith's latest song, it was very contro- it was a very controversial video. I guess because it wasn't heteronormative. I watched it before the big uproar about it, and I was like, oh, this is beautiful. This is art. And then it wasn't, it, it wasn't until a day or two later where all the conservatives were <coughs> offended by oh, of course, everything. Of and I'm like, well, you have like a queer person that is curvy, you know, it's not a skinny person and uh, very proud of how they present themselves. And yes, they can, they can present themselves in a little bit more like sexual way, but it wasn't like. It was done with taste, I felt. And oh, you yeah. see and so many... A, they're having a blast. Like, uh, yeah, just yeah, absolutely. everything right now. And and I'm going to be honest, before Unholy, I was mm. not a fan of Sam Smith's music. Mm. I always felt that they were whiny and complainy. And <laughs> I just it just did not hit me. I, I do, I do think it. it is a recurring theme in a lot of their music and their right. songs. And especially... I mean, for me, in the first album, I acknowledge the talent and the the voice is beautiful. But yes, the theme of the songs, it doesn't, it does. I I don't really connect with it. But it was actually in their previous album. There was a song called "To Die For." The video clip is also amazing for it. That song, like the first time I I heard it and I watched the video, just. I was emotionally distraught. It it was beautiful. And it wasn't like that I was relating with the lyrics, but I don't know. I, I just connected with it so much and it was very emotional. But yeah, and I'm really enjoying the new album and I am grateful that they're getting recognition right. through, you know, these awards. Yeah. And... Well, like I said, yeah, I just enjoy watching them just having so much more fun with mm-hmm. what they're doing. Now. Yeah, and their SNL yeah. performance was also very good. Right. No. 
And they brought Sharon Stone back for like that Gloria segment. <laughs> oh yes. Yes. She was just like looking gorgeous, just Stay lounging there. there. And I was like, oh, that, that's a great job to have. Right. <laughs> You're just being serenaded by Sam Smith while lounging on live. I TV. did, I watched that and I was like, oh my gosh. It was very creative. I liked it. And then to touch on like kind of Celebrity passings in general have, I feel like, have been a lot at the end of 2022. <laughs> Quite. But in particular, we did lose one of our icons, Leslie Jordan. Yes. Unexpectedly. So that one was hard. I um, think... You know, some of them are, are happening, like, and they are much older. Yeah. And so they're less surprising. Yeah, they still hurt, but, like, mm-hmm. less surprising. But Leslie Jordan was just kind of out of nowhere. I will, I will tell you this, that I did not know that I was this affected by Leslie Jordan or that I obviously really liked him as an actor and he was so incredibly endearing. And I follow him on social media. I now skip the posts made by his team because it makes me sad. Right. It, it you're, re- like you're not going to see new stuff anymore. It legitimately it makes me sad. Yeah. And I was like, oh no, I can't. I'm not ready for this he yet. he did. He had such a resurgence during the the pandemic mm-hmm. and making those little daily videos. They cheered, uh, they cheered everyone up. Right. He was so beloved. Yeah. And then, you know, having this wonderful role as Phil and Call Me Cat, the farewell that they said. Oh, yes. oh. I was getting cr- Dolly I, to come. Oh my god! When Dolly came on that screen, I was I, already my a mess. Tears, I was, like, <laughs> I was crying too. You cannot, you cannot do that to us. Yeah, it was, it was a lot. Yeah, and you had a name day dinner, correct? I did. <laughs> take a sip of your tea. Just take it. You keep trying. I keep every time that I'm trying to reach for my cup of tea. Matthew keeps asking a question. Well, let me have a sip of this tea real quick. It was beautiful. So we actually had it at your restaurant, Mm -hmm. uh, and the owner quite nicely gifted us a couple items. Oh, yes. Uh, And we had some lovely wine. Yeah, he remembered that I really liked a wine that that we serve, and that's, I guess, it's a nice wine. So, you know. Anyway, and I I was very pleasantly surprised that he brought it over, you know, and... It, it was such a lovely night. It, it wasn't a big thing. I was surrounded by some of my closest friends. And, oh yeah, like, <laughs> it was, I'm surprised that you brought it up. Mind you, I don't know any of these questions that Matthew keeps asking. So this is <laughs> very, like, oh yeah, my name day dinner. <laughs> That did happen. It did, it did. Yeah, it was, it was fun. Wonderful. You had like, what, like six or seven? It was, I think it was six of us total. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. It was wonderful. I ended up actually kind of drunk at the end of it, too. We oh, drank. We, we got drank. there a little late. It's not drunk at all, really. We, we drank well, we a lot of wine. I only had one drink. Like, drunk, not in a bad way. Like, no, 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 I know. Like, a little, yeah. I, I, I mean, I was having a blast, and it was wonderful. <laughs> so then, I, now I'm going to talk. <laughs> <laughs> I went to the Mona Skin concert. Right? Which, have you heard of them? Do yes. you know them? Okay. Mm-hmm. Kind of queer adjacent. They are... I've heard that they're, like, queer baiting too much. Well, okay. So, here, I think this is the story behind it. Apparently, in Italy, Italy is still pretty extremely homophobic. 
Well, yeah, especially with um, our current government. And and so my thought is that they their their base of support is still in Italy. They're new to the American market. They've mm-hmm. been around for a few years, but yeah. not in the American market. So they're now getting established over here, mm-hmm. but they can't lose their Italian support. And so they can't openly, if any of them are queer, I don't know that they are, but if any of them are, they can't come out because it would it would, it would be too risky for their careers at this point mm-hmm. until they have more of a following here. I understand it. It does make sense. You know? And also no one should be forced to come out. No, they shouldn't, uh, but you are correct. They they have been playing with yes. the idea. I mean, he wears harnesses and his Yeah, I, I mean, I I I enjoy their their music yes. a lot and it's a lot of fun. And the looks and, and and all that. And then, you know, you always They do put on an amazing concert. It you always really do read good. those like things like, "Oh, they're queer baiting because as a community we've been burned too many times." <laughs> I suppose. <Right. laughs> and and yeah. they I mean, I can see it. I can see why they're creating, but it's also their style of music is not as such, you know, they're not like pandering to the gays as no. far as like what their music is. Yeah. So that's pretty good. But yeah, they put on an amazing concert. It's very even. Like it's not just the lead singer getting the star, the, the spotlight the whole time. There's, There's not just a Beyonce. No. Yeah. <laughs> There's each one of the band members really get their time to their to shine and throughout the concert. So it's not like the bassist has several moments where they're the person shining, not just, Oh, here's your little cookie, you know? And then I remember when we were buying the tickets, the, the general admission tickets down on the floor, which are generally cheaper than seat tickets, they were actually more expensive and we could not figure out why. Because so, you can, like, rock out and move around. Right. Well, no, no, no. Oh. It's because... So, we ended up getting seats. And when I say more expensive, like, drastically more expensive okay. than, like, normal general admission uh, So, tickets, what was the reason? The reason is they go out in the crowds several times. Uh, they are out in the crowd. They crowd surf. They do a bunch of stuff. It's just... It was a really good concert. I do oh, recommend going to them if you have the opportunity next time so yeah it was fun it was a really fun concert and we do have a new queer icon on the scene these days she did a movie recently and just popped and her name is megan (laughs) (laughs) if y'all could see my face trying to figure out who is this who is this emergent queer icon Yes, that was such an entertaining film. Oh, yes. I <laughs> I loved it. And uh, yeah, no, go watch it. It's it's exactly as advertised. It's a horror comedy. Oh, yeah. And I, I found it surprising that I would be rooting for the doll so much <laughs> through it. You know, without giving too many plot points away, but... Yes, you end up rooting for the doll. Right. You really do. Because. Well, I just found it so amusing. Like, how tailored to being this, like. They knew they wanted to pull in the gay audience. Yes, like, it, it, so it has camp moments for sure. Yeah, it was very campy, yeah. And. But, you know, it also made, like, some 
really interesting conversations about oh, yes. artificial intelligence and, you know, trauma bonding or, yeah. you know, emerging from trauma rather. Not yeah, emerging from trauma. But even, yeah. even taking the, the trauma out of it, that was one of the big points. But how much you would rely on... And, uh, on something like that to mm-hmm. do something even essential as raise a child. Yes. No, I'm because, absolutely. Because you want to pursue your own things because, you know, it's, mm-hmm. yeah. It did have some like very interesting themes. Why are you laughing at? <laughs> I just remembered this meme <laughs> that was essentially like a kind of, uh, it was in a uh, ju- juxtaposition of Megan with bros. And a movie that they thought was going to do well with a gay queer community, right? But flopped, and then another one that were like uncertain, but then it really found like the audience, and like hit all those marks. Now, mind you, I have not seen Bros yet, but oh, you haven't? No, I did watch it. It's, I mean, I have several thoughts Mm -hmm. on kind of why both. Like one, it's it's Billy. Eichner's, I mean, you know, it's Billy Eichner comedy, Mm -hmm. and I I enjoy like a lot of Billy on the street. Um, I'm also he's a little abrasive for me, and so like I'm not a huge fan of Billy Eichner, Mm -hmm. and so and so watching an hour and a half film of like that continuously Uh is a little, you know, you know, I did love. uh, He did this. It was a couple seasons. The sitcom called Difficult People. Oh. Highly recommended. Yeah, it's so funny, so so incredibly funny, and uh, yeah, I'm not very much in romantic comedies, so that's why I never really cared to watch it. Eventually, I'll come, I'll go around it. I was very surprised, actually, these past couple months. I binge watched this Spanish romantic. It was a romantic comedy mini series called Smiley. Not to be confused with Smiley the horror film. That also came out this year. <laughs> very, very different plot. Let me tell one you. Of these things. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, it's called Smiley. It's on. Oh, ne- no, Smile. Okay. And it's. I also highly recommend watching it with subtitles in the original Catalan Spanish. It is so much better than the English version. Yeah. Yes. And I, I really enjoyed it. I was. I'm always very shocked when I enjoy a genre that I don't particularly find <laughs> enjoyable. <laughs> Understandable. Yes. So it was fun. Anyway, that's my recommendation for the day. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Along with Betty Who. <laughs> yes, Betty Who definitely. All right. So that wraps up our quick fire topics. And today we are going to cover Angela Lansbury. If you guys have enjoyed our fun conversations, please make sure to follow us on Instagram at Queer Icons Podcast. We try to be active when we can on there. Mm-hmm. So we put a, a few posts up, not so many in the past couple months, but a few. We will resume. We'll be getting back to it. <laughs> we will. Yeah, this is, I mean, part of our issue is like, this is a hobby for us. Mm-hmm. You know, we make no monetary money off of this. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, money. life gets in the way. And, right. You know, th- now that the holidays yeah, yeah. are past and yeah, we, we have less social obligations <laughs> and a little bit more free time. Right. Maybe. So tell us all about Angela Lansbury. 
<laughs> well, everything. now actually, I guess the first I will question say is, everything about everything. Angel. Well, what is our first? What was our first impressions before we started researching? And what what was your experience? I think the first media that I recall as a like a little kid of when I realized who Angela Lansbury was is definitely Ben Knobs and Broomsticks. Yeah. I was Which a, is such a fun film. It's a, yes. It's a mix of kind of because she's kind of a Mary Poppins character of she's taking care of two. She children. is she is a British witch uh-huh. and right yeah it, she it, she's learning to become a witch. Yes, yeah. she's learning to become through, a witch through you know we have online school now, but there it was correspondence. It was school. correspondence That's right. school. So like yes. letters mm-hmm. in the mail. Yeah, and uh, it takes place during the Second World War, where she is kind of forced to. Because she has a big house to accommodate some kids that, you know, they have to stay with her because they can't be in London anymore. Right. And... Which we will learn kind of mirrors something that happened in her life. In her life, yes. So she is, at first, kind of, you know, doesn't care about the kids because she cares about her studies. But obviously, through adventures, you know, they bond and they go... Yes. And do marvelous things, and it is a fantastic kids' movie. But I've watched it again as an adult, and it does hold up. It is still extremely entertaining. Oh, it does. I think yeah. Cameron and I watched it a year or so ago, actually. So, and it does. It does. Hold no, up. It, it really does hold up. It's still it, very fun. It has. It's kind of what you described, like Mary Poppins. It has that everlasting quality of like entertainment. Right. Yeah. For sure. What about you? So my, she was, for the first, what, basically 12 to 13 years of my life, she was on television, and she was one of the top-rated shows Mm -hmm. with Murder, She Wrote. So just constant, and I I don't think my family was ever a weekly watcher of Murder, She Wrote, but we definitely watched it. Yeah. You know, I don't remember any, like, specific episodes, but she was just always on. And then from that, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, and then obviously... The Miss Teapot, Miss Miss Potts. Potts, yes, Miss Potts from Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast. So then that song, like of course, throughout I, throughout the rest of our lives, <laughs> absolutely, it's just kind of a pinnacle moment. And then just from there, just kind of being a fan of hers, I have. I'm sure we will dive into it a little bit deeper. So I'll save my tidbits mm-hmm. about it. But the picture of dorian gray mm-hmm. yeah I, that's i found out she was in that and went back and watched it and said that oh, was yeah, good, yeah, which is good. one of my favorite novels mm-hmm. and uh, none of the movies have done like the the novel is much better it's much more queer i guess Yes. Uh, it's overtly gay. It's not... Like, I mean, it was the, written by it Oscar is, Wilde. So, right, uh, yeah. Yes. I mean, it is. it always like tries to be subtext, but it is gay, gay, gay. <laughs> How gay is it? It's <laughs> triple gay. Yes. <laughs> and so none of the films that have done it, even the, the more recent ones where they try to be more... Yeah, I didn't really care for... I mean, I say... Re- I was going to say recent one, but I think now it's like over 10 years. It is. I think they're like 15 years old. Oh my God. I know. (laughs) And two two came out like right around the same time, which was like a little weird. Competing studios. Yeah, I guess. And no one wins. Yeah. Uh, Neither one of them did the best job at it. Mm -mm. And I think, yeah, I think that really kind of like covers it. 
Yeah. She is one of the stars. Like, she is a, a recent death. Absolutely. And, Which and is part of the reason that I wanted us to start 2023 with her. I really wanted us to do a major celebrity and a major queer icon and someone very endearing. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to start diving in or and getting into the more, the bigger names now. I think we're kind of ready. Kind of ready. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like the sound of that. Uh, but, yeah. And, and so she's one of the celebrities that, like... I like she was grandmotherly to me mm-hmm. uh, growing up, as she was to most, to most everyone I mean, of our like, generation. When, yeah. I mean, she was sixty nine when Murder She Wrote started. Mm-hmm. So yeah, she has always been like in my lifetime an elderly lady. But it's also just like there has been a string of of deaths recently, like celebrity deaths, where they're in their nineties. Like I said, less surprising. Yes, but, I, like, I wasn't. It also shocked. just is like it. It feels like the death of an entire era is happening, kind of very quickly. She was fifty nine. Oh, fifty nine. I think so. I did some quick math. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> did I do it wrong? I thought she was sixty. I could have swore. I thought I heard that in a in one of the interviews I listened to this week, but I I stand corrected. I'm sure. <laughs> I don't know. It, it might... Anyway, that still makes her sixty, yeah. <laughs> which is not like no one. No, no, I under, no one claims that yes. we think sixty-year-olds are very young. So, so uh, let's get started. Though, yeah, let's do it. And in, in her life, and that's why because she was born in 1925. So Dame Angela Bridget Lansbury was born to an upper middle class family in central London on October 16th, 1925. Her mother was the Irish actress Moina McGill, and her father was the English politician Edgar Lansbury. So, this was something I did learn, that she was a legacy actress. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that, because it's her, and I think one of her grandparents was also in the act realm. I don't remember which one. I think it was a grandfather. A gra- yeah, the, the grandfather was a big figure in, in her life, for sure. But was it involved with acting? I don't remember. Uh, he was a politician. Oh, okay. So both her father and her grandfather were politicians. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. But as we will see, also, one of her kids also got into the show business world as yes, well. So it definitely ran into her family. Now, unfortunately, her father did pass away when she was only nine, so Angela resorted to pretending and playing characters as a coping mechanism. And, of course, in her teenage years, she became a cinephile and started studying acting. So I guess you use that trauma response, you realize you're really good at it, pretending to be someone else. And then you can be like, I can make a living. I can really invest in this. Yeah, something that I saw in an interview where she talks about her younger days is that she was was never a very precocious kid. She wasn't this outgoing, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, thing where her parents were like, you know, this acting. But it was a slower build Mm -hmm. where, like you said, she started pretending when she was on bus rides to pass the time she would pretend she was these different characters and stuff like that so and then it grew yeah absolutely now she moved to new york city in 1940 along with her mother and brothers to escape the blitz 
which kind of mirrors the bed knobs and broomsticks that we mentioned earlier of like a migration. Yeah. From, well, um, so that's actually what I was talking about. She, the kids her age and younger were actually, were going to, were like bust out of London to mm-hmm. go live in the outskirts because it was seen as safer. Yes. And she, went to her mother and said, you know, that she didn't want to go. And her mother said, okay, but if you stay, and that's when she got into acting school in London Mm -hmm. and started there. And then it did get bad enough that they did decide to, like you said, move to New York city. Yeah. Now they, they did leave behind her older sister Isolde, who was married to actor Peter Ustinov. Um, one of my favorite actors ever. And when I found out that relation, I, I was I was amazed. Because they also started one of my favorite movies, which we're gonna go into later on. <laughs> so I was yeah. just very happy to find that. I was like, oh my god, he was her bro- brother-in-law. <laughs> so Angela continued her studies in acting and started having theatrical roles and singing in Montreal. And she even lied about her age to get the job. So we do see a lot of Yes. In, in that era, specifically, to make ends meet, you lie about your age. Because she was too young. So she lied that she was of age to get it. Eventually, she moved to Hollywood in 1942. And for a while, she was the sole income earner, supporting her mother and brothers with her department store job. I think it was paying like $25 a week or something yes, like that. Yeah. Now, at the time, she became friends with a group of gay men who welcomed her and showed her the underground gay scene of the city. So we do see, like, early on, she was very comfortable with the queer scene and well, getting... she was. They, in New York, they also lived in Greenwich Village, which was yes. very gay. Her mother was always very, like, kind of comfortable in the gay scene, and, like, it was... That, you know, they welcomed from when they came over, like you said. So. Mm-hmm. so it wasn't anything, like, foreign. Right. Now, in one of her mother's parties, she met the co-author of the script for the movie Gaslight. And he thought Angela would be perfect for a cockney-made role. And after an audition, she was hired. She signed up with MGM and at the age of 18, was nominated for an Academy Award for her role in that movie. For her very first movie role. Very first movie role. Where at 18. <laughs> she's like, I didn't really know what I was doing, but like, oh my God, <laughs> this worked <Yeah>. out. <laughs> well, she was like, so she was already very, like, she was trained for theater, I think, yes. mainly. But like, she was tra- trained actor. But film is but yes, very different. Yeah. And especially at such a young age. Right. And I remember, like, they even have to wait for her to film some, like, drinking scenes until she became no, smoking. all smoking. smoking. And until she turned 18. Yes. yes. Which I thought was fascinating. She followed this up with another movie called National Velvet and became lifelong friends with her co-star Elizabeth Taylor. In 1945, her role as Sybil Vane in The Picture of Dorian Gray gave Lansbury her first Golden Globe and another nomination for Supporting Actress at the Oscars. So we already see, like, your favorite (laughs) movie. Well, just found success. I wouldn't say it was my favorite, but, like, I just found out she was in it, and so I watched it just to, like, see her role. And her her role was actually, like, fairly small in that Mm -hmm. movie, but yeah. Yeah, no, and she was really good. And even Gaslight... 
you know, she is, she was incredible in that. Yes. You know, I, like I was thinking, I watched Gaslight because... Gaslight of, was a much more memorable role yes. than the door, picture of Ingrid Bergman was in it, and she's great. But then I, that was like a discovery that also Angela Lansbury was, was in it. I was like, oh my God. Yes. Fantastic. <laughs> and now that same year, in September of 1945, she married Richard Cromwell who was an artist and decorator and formerly an actor as well. Now, he was gay and married her, hoping to lead a more heterosexual lifestyle, but the marriage lasted only nine months. Herself said, It didn't injure or damage me in any way because he maintained a friendship with me and my future husband. It was just a terrible error I made at a very young woman, but I don't regret it. So, it's so interesting. Like, later on, she spoke a little bit more openly about this relationship. Mm -hmm. But watching the the interviews of her in the 80s and early 90s, where in particular, uh, just being gay was not as accepting, and and she didn't want to out him. I don't know. Mm. I don't know when it was out of... But she was often, at, in several interviews I saw, she was asked about this relationship. And having I had watched, like, a more recent one, so she had been more open about it. And I could just tell she, like, she like clams up. She gives a very she, she, like, was political answer. Yeah, but it was, it was very protective. And she always has to think about how to respond to it. Mm-hmm. It always takes a moment. It's it very interesting. Well, it was also that she she has been like quite a private person about her personal life. Oh, yes, life she has. From the, from the interviews, like what I noticed, a lot of them are about the craft, the work, and not so much about like her deep personal, right? you know. Yeah. But but I did watch an interview where she describes this relationship where she said he saw her in Dorian Gray and became obsessed. This is her first marriage, mm-hmm. uh, Richard Cromwell, and became obsessed with her. And when he met her, you know, was talking about it, and that was the love interest. And I and she she was like, that really should have been the first sign. Is like you know this. So he was more infatuated with the character that she played. Yes, because she was in, you know, an Oscar Wilde film, Mm -hmm. you know, that was gay. And then, you know, she didn't understand. And even when he left her, she didn't understand why he left her. I mean, she was very young. So, Mm -hmm. of course, we always put on our blinders when we're fresh in love. Yeah, young love and all that. And, like, she even went to his therapist and was like, please tell me, like, you know, why? And the therapist could not, obviously, because client confidentiality doctor client and he wouldn't tell her but he was like it's not your fault and it did eventually dawn on her his entire social circle even while they were married was gay men (laughs) and so she figured it out but it took a minute apparently (laughs) now things that did seem to develop better for her in the romantic feel after this marriage though because about a year later, she was introduced to a fellow British expatriate, Peter Shaw, who was actually Joan Crawford's ex. Yes. I found out. Yeah, I now, saw that. they fell in love, they got married in 1949, and both became naturalized U.S. citizens in 1951, and now holding dual citizen, or dual yeah. nationality, rather. Now, she was very dissatisfied about how GM was constantly casting her in, like, either villainous roles or older roles, like very matronly, and consider they really did consider her in their like B list roster. 
Right. So she did terminate her contract with the company in 1952. She said about it that we called it the factory. I was a utility actress as far as MGM was concerned. They could put me into almost any role and I would act it. And obviously, she's not the only story of that era. Like other actresses have no. come forward. Well, that was. I think that's like kind of the period of time where really like character actor mm-hmm. becomes a thing, and that's what yeah. she describes herself as as a character actor. So they knew she was a very solid person that they could, like you said, literally put in any role. Yeah, she she had the talent, she had the skill set, but they didn't want to build her up like contemporaries like Deborah Kerr. Or, no, yeah, like yeah. you know the the starlet or the, the starlet. leading lady, mm-hmm. you know, absolutely. Now that same year, her son Anthony was also born, and the following year, her daughter Deirdre. Her husband also brought his son from a previous marriage that so he had to California, having gained legal custody of the boy. So you know, within just a couple of years, we see three children. Right <laughs> now, by nineteen fifty nine. Watching interviews, she really does consider, you know, that stepchild her child. Yeah. Like, oh, she uh, always yeah, yeah. spoke of him as her son, not as, like, you know, she would clarify, mm-hmm. like, once, but, like, then she spoke of him as, like, her son. So mm-hmm. I, I thought that was very telling. Oh, quite. And we do see that she really did try to keep almost like a, the, the family unit a little bit separate from Hollywood because she also did not like the Hollywood scene. So in 59, she moved everyone to Malibu and she just preferred quiet evenings at home with friends, piano and like home activities. She actually liked housekeeping apparently. And she just wanted to be away from the Hollywood scene, the nightlife and all of that. Hollywood yet insisted on casting her in older maternal roles. That's giving the impression that she was older before her time. And I did have that impression, too, growing up. She continued working in theater, films, and television, having revitalized her career and even gaining an A-list status by the late 50s and early 60s. Now, her Broadway performance in A Taste of Honey marked the start of her friendship with her co-star and onstage daughter, Joan Plowright. Only four years younger than her. (laughs) Well, she also played Elvis Presley's mother during this time, who was only three years younger than her. Yes, I do do mention him right after. Oh, you do? Okay, sorry, I jumped the gun. (laughs) And now, Joan's boyfriend at the time was Laurence Olivier. The famous Laurence Olivier as well. Right. And the couple actually eloped to get married from Angela's apartment at the time. So she kind of like, I guess, facilitated this thing. (laughs) Love... (laughs) Um, but I, I don't know. I just kind of love all these like connections. And of course, Olivier was famously not just straight. <laughs> For lack of a better word. So talking about queer icons uh, yes. overall. In 61, she played the mother of Elvis Presley in Blue Hawaii. I do remember that movie. That's actually my favorite Elvis movie, I think. It's probably because it was the first one that I watched. And she really did not care about this role, but she did agree to take it out of desperation because she was hustling at the time to revitalize her career after her contract ended. She was, and she, I I remember her speaking about this, like, she was kind of the major, the big breadwinner for her family, and so, and they really did need 
I mean, three children. Yes. <laughs> in mean, Malibu. They were obviously doing well in Malibu, but, but they still needed to, in order to, to still do well, they yeah. needed her to take some jobs. Absolutely. Now, the following year, she again began playing another mother figure, this time to Lawrence Harvey, who again was an actor close to her age. But this movie was The Manchurian Candidate. Her performance in this film was critically lauded as a triumph. And she was nominated for her third time for Best Supporting Actress by the Academy. And every interview, everything that I've like seen about this movie, she is truly the standout. So, I have actually never seen it. Have you seen it? I've seen parts of it. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I've never seen it either. Mm-hmm. And I've seen parts and I, with her in it, yeah, yeah. specifically. Well, yeah. Right. And I have always heard of this film throughout mm-hmm. my life, but I've just never watched it. But now having done the research and seeing clips from it, I was like, oh, I need to watch this. Movie night. Because, yes, we do. Because she is, like, despicably evil. Oh, like, incredible. hateful, hateful evil. And apparently there's a little plot twist and everything. Yeah, it's something we definitely need to take the time and watch. Mm-hmm. Now... Other films that followed this success really failed to live up to her expectations. The roles kept getting like minor, smaller, and they were really limiting for her range and her skills. And yes. it was a good thing that she acknowledged that. Because her next big thing was in 1966, which she got the title role of the musical Mame. On Broadway. On Broadway. She and beat... She fought for this role apparently mm-hmm. like she she flew herself out to new york and she like she did everything she possibly could to like try to get this film she said it was like it, it was the only um you mean the role role yeah sorry to get this role it was the only time that she really like really humbled herself which she said she needed in the end but like she really humbled herself and she was 41 to get too this, so, when yes, like fighting this so this role You're not, like, a young actor, like, hustling. You know, you're getting up there, especially by the industry standards, which are abysmal about age. But, yeah, the role was glamorous and demanded all the singing, dancing. And, of course, when it opened on Broadway, it gave Angela a cult gay following. Of course it did. You know, of course, she was supported. And this was her first musical role, starring uh, musical role. Yeah, uh, was it? Yeah, that she was like the major star, right? And of course, we also have another gay icon, B. Arthur, in the role who, of Vera Charles, who she was actually in. So the director of the play mm-hmm. was B. Arthur's husband, mm-hmm. and he was going. To, he wanted B. Arthur to be Mame. Mm-hmm. And so, like, that added another complexity to her getting it. And, but anyway, I just thought it was so interesting. Oh, like, I, the director I, wanted. I didn't know B. that Arthur he wanted to, Arthur to, to play. Yeah, he Mame. wanted to play. Yeah, he wanted her to play Mame, and, and oh. Angela Lansbury wound up beating her out in the end. And they remained, like, lifelong friends yes, from they, that. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, you know, <laughs> we do have, like, B. Arthur complaining that Angela. Had a foul mouth. <laughs> like, I don't know about complaining, but <laughs> she has. I mean, and what we we will we have observed is she had this like super, like beloved persona. 
Very poised. Uh, very, very poised. Yes, and but always it, gave the politically correct answer whenever asked. I saw several interviews where she was asked about several different people, mm-hmm. and she always, always gave a very politically correct response. Yes. And never never showing any... <laughs> any I, you have no idea what she really thought of people <laughs> like in the industry. At least not, not from the public eye perspective. Yes, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, of course, this this definitely enhances her queer or gay iconic status, the, yes. this role. And it was already a popular character from Rosalind Russell's take in the previous movie that was not a musical. That's also a great music movie. Oh, a fabulous movie. And, uh, of course, the reviews were very positive, resulting in Lansbury receiving her first Tony Award for Best Leading Actress in a Musical. And... You know, when in interviews when she was asked about this role, like and about her being a gay icon, she goes back to this part of her life, and she goes, "I'm very proud of the fact that I am a gay icon." Right. And because of this, now this accomplishment and publicity gave her many more varied work opportunities. She performed at the '68 Academy Awards. That is a great performance. Look it up on YouTube. And hosted with her former brother-in-law, Peter Ustinov, the Tonys, that same year. So, 68, when was that? That was in 68. Thank you. Okay, (laughs) so she had performed... Alright, I had to look this up. Because I saw a performance of her at the Oscars, but it was the 31st. I did find it. The 31st Oscars. That was in 59. And she performed. And so, obviously, like I said... What? What are you showing me? Oh, it was, anyway, it was, I'm just showing you the video of the performance. <laughs> oh, I see. The, the, so, well, there's another one from 1959. She does this performance, and we always think of Angela Lansbury, of course, as as very prim and proper. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah I showed this to you. Yeah, 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 with Joan Collins. Yes, it's very prim and proper, and never saying a bad word about anybody. We just discussed this. But in this, she's kind of the opening number, I think. And she is just roasting Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's it's still timid for what we think of roasting these days. But I just, I started watching this and she started going in on people. And I was like, oh my God. And I think I had been drinking a little bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Cameron comes out of like from the bedroom and like is looking at me and asked me a question, and I'm like, I think I just saw Angela Lansbury roast all of Hollywood in front of me, and I'm like, Ford. <laughs> it was just a very, it was a surprising how many, performance. How many times does it happen when your husband walks into the living room, you've just watched a video, and you're like... Of like some gay icon. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my god, I found the most amazing video. <laughs> anyway. Actually, I really did, I you made me laugh yesterday, because... I was I was with your with your husband and I just checked up my phone at some point and I saw a text from you and I was like, oh he probably can reach Cameron for something because we didn't have our phones on us right and so I was like oh maybe it's an emergency so I was like oh might as well read it and he was like Angela Lansbury trivia <laughs> <laughs> I was like this is not what I thought. <laughs> No, yeah. So I was doing my prep work, sir. Thank you. I was at a spa. <laughs> I assumed you were also doing your prep work, but apparently I was wrong. I didn't find out until Cameron came home. 
Now, uh, now we are going to see around that time period that even though she had all this accomplishment, this fame, her career had been like revitalized, that she did face a lot of personal grief as we do see like her children abuse cocaine and heroin at the time. Now, the following year, she won her second Tony for her role in Deal World. Transitioning to the 70s, she became more selective with her choice of roles, even declining Nurse Ratched in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and instead chose to do something for everyone, playing Countess von Ornstein, a very camp and fun role, which we did have a movie night. Do you remember the movie? I do not. It was the castle in, uh, I think it was Germany that it was taking place. And it did have like some queer notes. It was very camp. She was yes. eating that roll up. Yes. It looked like she was having such a blast. With I do it. remember this. Yeah, yeah. I know it's a very, you know, one of those comedies that, I don't know, you don't really hear about. We just randomly found it. And decided to watch it, and I loved it. It was great. It was great. Now, her following movie was Disney's Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, becoming her first lead in a movie musical. This film was very successful and offered her a brand new young audience. And a young audience for many, many decades to come. Because right. it has become like a classic, and Disney is the biggest media company when it comes to like children's content films, yes. and films. So obviously, yes, it will always be, I think one of her career highlights, that movie. Oh, definitely. And definitely back then in the seventies, there mm-hmm. wasn't, you know, there wasn't the, the competing companies quite yet. Mm-hmm. Not like even, you know, this is television, but even like Nickelodeon and stuff yeah. like that did, did not exist at the time. So. Absol- absolutely. The balance of commercial success was once again followed with personal turmoil as 1970 was truly a traumatic year for her family. Peter went, underwent a hip replacement surgery. Anthony suffered a heroin overdose and entered a coma. And the family's Malibu home was destroyed in a bushfire. So she decided with her husband to move to Ireland in hopes for Antony to recover from his addiction, which did prove successful as he followed his mother's path into acting and eventually directing. And he directed several episodes of Murder, She Wrote. Yeah, well, he actually... I'll cover that when we get to Murder, She Wrote. Uh, <laughs> but in this time period, she mm-hmm. actually credits the burning of her home to as, as the catalyst for... Mm-hmm giving her the the idea and the gumption, I guess, mm-hmm. to move back to Ireland and bring her family with her to bring them out because her her kids had gotten so into like drug use and stuff like that. Yeah. And, like she was desperate, but like you know, having a home there, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. tied her to to Malibu, but having that Sudden freedom, you know, caused her to to really draw them out of it and 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 really probably save his life. Absolutely. It was a very smart decision. Um, And even her daughter's life, because Mm -hmm. her daughter had actually been gotten involved in the Manson family. And it was before, you know, the really, the murders. The murders. The murders. So she was able to, and, and she had, you know, the motherly intuition that that Mm -hmm. she was not 
hanging out with good people mm-hmm. with the, the Manson family, and she in particular did not like the leader apparently. So yeah, so I'm guessing good intuition, uh, right, Angela. Good intuition, yeah. And so she's being able to take both of her kids out of some like very desperate bad situations, mm-hmm. uh, and yep, and taking a step back from her career really to do it. Yeah, she didn't. She she I think did not accept any acting roles for a couple years while she was yeah you know in Ireland at first. Yeah, it wasn't until like 1973 really where she took the role of Rose and Gypsy. Which was, she was hesitant at first to follow after Ethel Merman, because, you know, Rose right. and Ethel Merman were synonymous. Well, yeah, something. how do you follow Ethel Merman? How do you that fo- voice? Woo. Definitely. But she, she got rave reviews and toured the U.S., right. leading her back to Broadway and earning her a third Tony Award. Right. Now, her first cinematic role in seven years was as a novelist, Salome Ottenburn, in the nineteen seventy eight adaptation of Agatha Christie's *Death on the Nile*, it was filmed both in London and Egypt. And in the film, Lansbury starred alongside Peter Ustinov, again her brother-in-law, yes. Maggie Smith, and Bette Davis, among some other incredible actors. And she did become friends. Even like Betty Davis said that like they shared a tiny room to get ready for their characters along with Lansbury and Maggie Smith and they all somehow got along yes, like extremely well. So this is probably my favorite Lansbury movie though. Um, the th- it's one of my favorite books. Right. It's a great adaptation of the book in my humble opinion. <laughs> it has a lot of wonderful campy moments. Well, what's interesting about this and, like during the 70s she played a lot of like murder mysteries like in, mm-hmm. in general, but oftentimes she played a like murder mystery writer in all of these yes. things, which then yes. is oh. foretelling to what becomes, you know. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And that's why I wanted to take like a pause on, on this movie as well. But her role, I mean, it got her some awards as well. It is just phenomenal. Right. Just phenomenal. And just, again, it's like when someone is so gifted and so charismatic and they just like eat it up. It was it was so seamless, so flawless and perfect for her. Now soon after the next year, she appeared as Nellie Lovett in Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street, which was a Sondheim musical, and of course, because Sondheim was involved, she really wanted that role. And I do remember it was a few years ago, but I was reading just how difficult a part was with breathing and she complained to him uh-huh. that she can't breathe and like the singing the singing part and he was like you're not supposed to <laughs> she was well, like so out of breath <laughs> well so this was another one she hesitated to take i think mm-hmm. and she she met with i guess sondheim and I think they had to rework one song and they had to add in a song. Mm. She said, you know, I won't take it unless I, you know, have it. And she, this was also, I think she was just kind of having fun at this point like mm-hmm. with things. I think she had reached the point in her career where she could be a little more demanding and she wanted to have fun. And 
And what a meaty role added, to have. Yeah, well, he, I think that's what <laughs> Pun it was. Intended. She, she wanted a little more comedy because it was such a dark play. Yes. And that's what he added in for her was a, a little bit of Priest. A little, a little priest. priest. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm so glad there's so YouTube videos of, of her performance of that. Cause oh, yeah. Such a so, classic. And she said there was one night... There was one night that the audience just was not as lively or uh-huh. you know, whatever. And so she would do things like she would throw dough into the audience or at the orchestra conductor mm-hmm. during some of the songs, you know, having fun with it. And then, yeah, there was one time where the audience was not as lively. And so she took the dough and made it into male genitalia, basically, and hung it over the table. <laughs> and then it like of course it being dough it like drooped and they, and they had that reaction exactly they, like, they livened was, up after that that was so. smart that was smart of her yeah but yeah it earned her her fourth tony so we do see that she didn't have all the accolades when it comes to like the film industry or tv as much but then the theater the stage adored yes. her and moving on to the 80s, she appeared as Miss Marple in another Agatha Christie novel. And this one was the movie adaptation of The Mirror Cracked, which also included gay icons Liz Taylor and Rock Hudson. <laughs> yes. Of course. It's also a marvelous film. There's a scene where Liz Taylor and Kim Novak are film like rivals because yes. they're both like movie stars several times and it's one of my favorites <laughs> every time of course it's where he has a more demure like role of right. the person solving the crime so it's not as lavish as the film stars involved but yes. still she is like the backbone of the movie and uh, so we're gonna see that this was again another precursor for murder she wrote right now, of course, in 82, she was inducted in the American Theater Hall of Fame. Again, we see the acknowledgement and the stage that this has given her. And soon after, Murder, She Wrote was offered to her. So, this, yeah, I see you're about to bring up Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> Another little interesting tidbit, she actually was offered a few things at the time. They mm-hmm. Actually, she was... Being courted for television in general. And she had some sitcom roles to her and some more dramatic with being like Murder, She Wrote. And one of the sitcom roles was actually Golden Girls that Mm -hmm. she declined. I don't know what role. Like, it was never said, like, what role. Or, like, it, it may have just been, like she was given the script and offered to like read or something like that. I don't know like how far, how far, how long it went. So I don't know like any details, but like I did see that like, and in my research that, yeah, she was kind of courted for, for golden girls Mm -hmm. to do sitcom. And she decided against doing like sitcom work in general. Well, I think obviously her choice to do murder, she wrote, which is a landmark of American television. Right. For sure. Oh, of course, it was definitely like twelve years yeah. <laughs> worked to her benefit. Now you know her role of Jessica Fletcher really became iconic. She was the successful detective novelist who solved murders in her travels. <laughs> Honestly, I've I've watched so many episodes of the show, and then I'm like, sometimes don't you think you're the common denominator? Because everywhere you right, go, someone so dies. Dead. <laughs> that you have to solve it. Right. Now, she did have creative input on her character's appearance, lines, and even asserted that her character, who was a widow, 
should remain a single strong woman. So she didn't want any romantic interest as the studio kind of like was trying to push towards. Mm -hmm. She saw this character as a role model to older women. And of course, its popularity paved the way for other shows with older female leading characters, such as the Golden Girls that you mentioned. Right. And eventually she became an executive producer of the show in the early 90s. (laughs) And it concluded in May of 96. She holds the record for the most Emmy nominations for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Drama Series with 12. Yeah, because she was nominated. One for each season. Yes, every season. And she never won, which is also a record. Uh, Oh, gosh. I don't know if I love that record. It's incredible. She actually has never won an Emmy. She's been nominated so many times beyond Murder, She Wrote as well. Right. (laughs) They never gave it to her. Uh. So this, like, I find it interesting, this is just kind of my personal take on it, watching her interviews, because I watched, starting with Murder, She Wrote, there are just so many interviews of her, Mm -hmm. like, just so many, and it's really interesting, when she first starts with Murder, She Wrote, you know, she's thankful for being on the show, but she doesn't seem that into the character of... Jessica. Jessica, God, I couldn't think of the first name. I knew Fletcher. I couldn't think of the first But of Jessica Fletcher. And then as the show goes on, like like you said, where she has more of the opportunity to really put her spin on it mm-hmm. and, and have more control over the character and then, you know, eventually taking over executive And I did producer. love... Like, you see that she really does fall in love with the character. Yes. But the fir- those first couple seasons when I was watching her interviews, it was mm-hmm. kind of obvious that she was kind of like... Okay, well, this this is something I'm doing. <laughs> mm. Well, more so than like really. I do see that she has more fun when Jessica portrays like a different character mm. within the show. You know, when where she's like undercover as someone else, right? And it it makes like great com- comedic like timing and effect, and it, it's wonderful. I recently actually just watched an episode where she goes undercover at a hospital or like a doctor's office portraying this very wealthy lady who just is a hypochondriac eventually. (laughs) And just, you know, it's a mess. Oh, it was so much fun to watch. Right. And you can really tell that like, okay, that was the part where she was just like having a blast. Yeah. Yes. Hamming it up. Exactly. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and like, I think more of that happens once the character... So, a little history. It starts off in a small town. Mm-hmm. Like, she lives in a small town. Eventually, she moves to, like, New York City. Mm-hmm. And kind of goes back and forth between the yes. two places. And, like, you can tell her interest in the role really increases when it goes from just being, like, her small town life to, yeah. like, being a more broader, mm-hmm. you know... And, and when she, like, traveled a lot... Right. There was, I I think I even texted you about that. I was watching an episode and she was on a cruise with her niece. She had so many nieces and nephews. Oh, yes. That it was, it's absurd how many cousins (laughs) and, and (laughs) I mean. Just family members that would just pop up every week. That were not ever the same ones. (laughs) No, absolutely not. So, yeah, they were on a cruise and. He had John Worley and, oh my God, who was the other one? 
And somehow her her relatives were also always flabbergasted that she had the ability to solve these crimes. And I'm like, are none of you talking to each other? (laughs) (laughs) I know. Did one cousin not go back and be like, oh my God, I had the craziest time with Aunt Jessica. (laughs) Yes. So I remember it was Vicky Lawrence from The Curve Uh, Show. So John Worley and Vicky Lawrence were in it, along with Angela Lansbury. Leslie Nielsen was a captain. Oh. And I was like, what an amazing episode. And, right. and then I was like, if either Worley or Lawrence end up being like the murderers, I'm going to scream. <laughs> like, I'm not going to give the episode away. Just right. watch it. It was great. But I was enthralled. And yes, it is very campy. It is very queer. And the community has truly accepted and loved that show as part of like their fabric. Oh, yes. uh, and of course, we did mention that she was Mrs. Potts in Beauty and the Beast. And of course, she is so incredibly charming and motherly and comforting. Right. And and then her very like signature voice singing the title song as they're like dancing. It's marvelous. And apparently she took that role for her grandchildren as a gift to them, which I always oh. loved. Oh. I love when like big actors do that. I just did this for my family. You right. Know? <laughs> For the kids. In 94, Queen Elizabeth II appointed her as a commander of the Order of the British Empire for services to the dramatic arts. And the following year, she was given the Disney Legend Award, the Screen Actors Guild Life Achievement Award, and National Medal of Arts. We really do see. After Murder, She Wrote, she has become like this like legendary, iconic yes. status. Where it's just like, okay, now all the, the recognition, the accolades are like coming through and it's not just because of her career because also during the worst years of the AIDS pandemic Lansbury became a staple at AIDS benefits helping raise millions of dollars to fund patient care and research she said this illness is robbing us from our friends and our futures this disease knows no discrimination and when she was awarded in 96 for her work as an AIDS activist she asserted that we must never give up the fight until the war is won. And even she had, I think, I I was unclear on exactly how often it ran, but she had this little, like, basically PSA after mm-hmm. Murder, She Wrote episodes mm-hmm. about HIV knowledge. I did not know AIDS that. knowledge and how important it was and that, like, it it wasn't just a gay disease, basically. I mean, she mm-hmm. didn't say those words, but that anybody could get it. She was making the, the and, plea uh, of... Especially you know, how popular this. that show was. Everyone right. was watching yeah. it. So. It was in the top ten, its entire run, and, like, in the top ten shows. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, just using her platform very publicly to support the AIDS crisis. And I saw a few interviews where she talked about the massive number of friends that she lost and not just her but you know the industry she said everybody in the industry was losing so many friends how could you ignore this yeah no absolutely absolutely and then in the later 90s one of my favorite roles that she took was when she voiced the empress dowager in anastasia and she also you know when (laughs) she's saying like once upon a december and like oh that that was that was a very good role. Very, again, her voice is like such a signature, so different oh, from yeah. everyone else. Immediately recognizable. And starting off the 2000s with becoming a Kennedy Center Honors honoree. 
Right. Uh, she followed it with a Britannia Award for Lifetime Achievement by the British Academy. Three years later, again, all the recognition and her career. Unfortunately, things in her personal life, once again, weren't that great because in 2003, her husband did pass away and resulted in her decision to take only small acting roles or cameo appearances. And it wasn't until her role as Aunt Adelaide in Nanny McPhee, which pulled her out of the abyss, as she describes it. And we did watch earlier Emma Thompson, who was the creator of Nanny McPhee. Yes, talk about getting her to play yeah, that role. To play, yes. <laughs> and it was so funny how she was like down to to play this comical, silly role. Right. And sometimes you just need something lighthearted like this to right. pull you out of your grief. Now, after 23 years of absence from Broadway, she returned with Deuce in 2007 and even got a Tony Award nomination for her role. I resent myself so much for not going to see that play. I was in New York when that was on. And you didn't go see it. And yeah, I, at the last minute, I decided like, I wanted something like lighthearted rather than something a little bit more intense. And I regret it. Right. I really, because I could have seen her on the stage. <laughs> that was so, so disappointing. Uh, on To me. Right. <laughs> she followed this success with a revival of Blythe Spirit, which earned her a Tony Award for Best Featured Actress in a Play, her fifth win overall. Not slowing down, she continued again with A Little Night Music, opposite Catherine Zeta-Jones, getting another Tony nomination. Now, in November 2013, she received an Academy Honorary Award for her Lifetime Achievement at the Governor Awards. And she said herself, I had no idea that such a thing could happen. It never occurred to me. My son told me. He called me and said, Darling, I just wanted you to know that you have been chosen to receive an Honorary Academy Award. I was in the back of this car and I said, Oh, and burst into tears. Of course, because... It was so unexpected and quite wonderful. I thought it's been worth hanging around all these years. <laughs> I hope so. And in 2014, and the New Year's Honours List, Queen Elizabeth II appointed her as a Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire for services to drama and to charitable work and philanthropy. And she herself was like, oh, I mean, like, great company with, like, Maggie Smith and Judy Dench. And, yes. you know, it's nice to be acknowledged <laughs> with that. The following year, she received her very first Olivia Award for Best Supporting Actress for Blythe Spirit. And she continued working through the end of the 2010s. Her last appearance even being a cameo along with the late Stephen Sondheim and Glass Onion that came out this year. It was. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. It, I yes. remember now. Okay. It was when was like, Daniel Craig's character was right. talking to the screen at the yes. beginning. And she did. Yeah. I mean, well, this was 10 years ago, I guess. 2013, I think, was when Mary Poppins came out. Or was it later? Uh, I think it was 2015. 2015, yeah. Yeah, she, she had the, the balloon, balloon lady. lady. Yeah. And then she had another role, which I didn't realize, like, right after that. I can't remember what it was. Yeah. Though. She was still working through. Uh, yeah. I saw an interview. She did an interview with. Is it Larry King? Maybe anyway, where he took he took questions from online, um, 
and they asked her if she would do Broadway, and she was like, no, and she's like, I'm not saying I couldn't. She was like, I just wouldn't. It's too much. <laughs> well, I mean, it's eight shows a week. Yeah, she was in her 90s. That was when she was 93, but that interview, I think, mm-hmm. was what I was talking about, so... So, and of course, um, this past year in 2022, the Tony Awards gave her the special Tony for Lifetime Achievement. And I remember because she did not show up for the award ceremony, nor did she record a message that people were like, is she ill? Oh my God, we don't have a lot of time with her. And so he like put it in my head. And then eventually, just a few months later, in October 11th, 2022, she did pass away. Just five days short of her birthday at age of 96. Uh, she was going to be 97. What is it with these ladies dying like right Betty White. before their birthday? <laughs> Gosh. At least have like a last birthday to right. <laughs> bring it enjoy to it one last time. Yes. So this was like the life and career of Angela Lansbury. And there was so much more. Like living up to 96 and oh, doing yes. so many things. We oh. had to... We had to cut down and edit a lot. Yeah, we had to gloss over so much. What was a surprising thing you learned during the research? You you knew so much beforehand. I did, I did. I mean, I guess the most surprising was that she was the sister-in-law of Peter Usinov, but that was kind of like the most surprising before my research, like finding that out, especially since they had like appeared on screen together and all that. Right. I don't know. I kind of really liked that because I never saw these two actors together and then somehow, (laughs) oh, they're related. Oh, they're related. The acting world is incestuous. (laughs) Quite. Quite. (laughs) I think during this research, though, just what an ally she was to our community. Oh, yeah. You know, it's just like we... She had such an endearing persona, public persona. Right. And then it was very nice not to be disappointed doing this research about, like, personal things. That she was, like, truly an ally and uh, truly a supporter of the community and and all that. And I was like, ah, she she truly, she was, like, a good person. That's what I'm (laughs) coming down to that, (laughs) you know? Yeah. We've, we've covered people before that we we surprisingly found out that they were a little problematic. Yeah. They so had a little, I'm, little... I'm glad that she wasn't. <laughs> yes. Well, she was always just... Well, so the most surprising thing I learned was definitely kind of her family drama of sorts. <laughs> One, I, di- I didn't realize that she had had the first husband. I mean, it's only nine months, but... Yeah. I, I, if I knew it, I like had put it out of my head forever. Mm-hmm. But then to learn, you know, even that was a gay relationship so, or a relationship with a gay person. So obviously, you know, following while, the while footsteps had, of other gay icons marrying, right? Gay I was gonna say, men. while while gay men obviously had an affinity for her, she also, I mean, even in that decision, had an affinity towards like. So that's a little surprising, but also just the surprise she was always so put together and so professional in every in every interview. Yeah, she was very polished. Every, yes, yeah. and everything. So, and she actually makes, alludes to this fact in some of the interviews of, mm-hmm. you know, like you said, she talks about her per- professional life. She doesn't talk about her personal life in mm-hmm. these interviews. And so, you always picture these people as very put together and yeah. perfect when really... 
you know, there's the Dales have their own the struggles. Yes, but it is their job to put the smile on their face, even when you know life is. Yeah, hard. Uh, absolutely. You know, actually, there something that did surprise me, not from this research again about her life, but that she also had a workout tape. Oh, yeah. Oh, we didn't bring that up. I told you, <laughs> you should have put this in here. I knew I wasn't going to remember. That's why I brought it up, because I, I remember. And that was in the 90s. So this she really was 70 at that point. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and that was when um, I first started hearing her really talk about being a, wanting, wanting to be, shit. If I only had a brain. <laughs> uh, what is it? Not a mentor. A teacher. No. A role model. Yes, a role model. Thank you. Good Lord. <laughs> Where she really wanted to be a role model for women in general. Not just older women, but women in general. <laughs> and like, they could still do things. you know. And, and I think that's what Jessica Fletcher offered to her. Right. That she... Getting TV is this wonderful device that can really put, like all these people and all this information in this tiny little screen and you get all this information and all this influence in the eighties before, you know, smartphones, TV was the way to do it. Yeah. And before like internet was widespread. Yeah. So So, yes, becoming like a a role model to women, like of a, a certain age, Right. Was, was but like, fantastic. Yeah, life doesn't, yeah, that was one of her, it, that felt like a very big theme of hers post-MAME, or mm-hmm. like starting with MAME and, and moving forward, of that you you have, she said this comment so many times, of you have so much life left. Yes, absolutely. Like, you are not done, and that you can have so much success after this. Because you know? she was definitely, like she was proof of that. But like, yeah, and like... It was always important to her to say that. Something, so, like, going to her kind of gay icon status bona fides, <laughs> I just, we always talk about, like, oh, gay men are, like, drawn to strong women. But, like, when we mention that, it's oftentimes people in the vein of, you know, a Cher or a Madonna or kind of loud, brassy women mm-hmm. that, that, Yes, they also have their own polish about them, but but that they are defiant in certain ways. And what surprises me about Angela Lansbury in general is she's this gay icon, but like I really don't see her being, you know, outwardly, you know, a defiant person. So well, she's not abrasive, but I right. do think she, I do think she's defiant. She really did persevere through. A lot of typecasting, right? And you know, try to really create opportunities for herself, and and then was very very smart about what well, to do I mean, when these opportunities yeah. came her way. Just I'm just thinking, like career wise, obviously personal life. You know, salvaging your family, right? Moving them. No, no, no. I'm not saying she's not a strong woman. I'm just, I'm saying like the type of strong woman we tend, that the gay community tends to be drawn to are those more, more uh, loud, you would say, like, yeah, I mean, like, yeah. And so, yeah, just very, like like I said, loud, brassy, you know, like broad type women. I guess, I suppose, yeah. I mean, that's um, even, even in, 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 with our drag arts, that tends to be, what mm-hmm. what the drag queens go for. Although she definitely did have like a lot of moments where she was more brassy and broad and mm. and that that 
makes me think of Julie Andrews, who, you know, by the 80s, she was, like, completely fed up with her right. more, like, sweet persona. And then, you know, she did a B and was like, no, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to shake things up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's different approaches to it. I see where you're coming from, but I don't fully agree that she didn't have a strong presence. She was she was maybe also quite polished. Yeah, she was quite polished. I mean, um, you know, very and, British in the, her, you know, like, yeah. just a, a little more subdued in, in her stardom, I guess, mm. if you will. But, yeah. It, I mean, I, I guess reaching reaching your, the height of your success, you know, later in life means you're probably not out of the bars and drinking all the time. Yeah, well, and know? she didn't like that, you know. Or, like, to you know, in with. the tabloids as much. Yes. <laughs> so, I, I do think like, that, like, this perseverance and the campiness and right. that she had in some of the roles like were really what resonated the most with the community. And, obviously, her charity work. Yeah, her charity. Down. Yeah, and I'll allow you to close us out. Yes, I would like to actually close out with uh, a quote uh, from Angela Lansbury. I'd like to be remembered as somebody who entertained, who took one out of oneself for a few minutes, a few hours, transported you into a different venue, gave you relief, gave you entertainment, and gave you joy and laughter and tears. All those things. I would like to be remembered as somebody who was capable of doing that. And I truly think she was. She was. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.